Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. I'm your NBN host, Lavinia Stan, a professor of political science at St. Francis Xavier University in Canada. I am talking today with Luke Moffat, a professor of human rights and international humanitarian law in the School of Law of Queen's University in Belfast and a fellow of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace security and justice at the same university. Welcome to New Books Network, Look. Hi, Lavinia. Thank you for having me. Thank you for accepting this interview about your recent book, Reparations and War, Finding Balance in Repairing the Past, which was published with the reputed Oxford University Press earlier this year. Before we start our interview, our discussion about the book, look, can you tell the listeners um, something about your background? Yeah, so um, I'm from Northern Ireland and I grew up um, towards the end of the Troubles and uh, it was quite a, um, it wasn't the worst violence part of the troubles most violent part but it was growing up in a place where you regularly were used to a lot of uh, military presence a lot of bombs going off and um, people being killed um so it, it, it was normal so it was to have that sort of violence going on in the background of growing up um and it you, you never really thought differently it wasn't a war as we'd understand it under international humanitarian law because it wasn't that intense it was more of a low intensity conflict but um, even though the peace process came in 1998, there was still, you know, bubbling over of violence, um, which comes and goes at times. Um, and, you know, nobody in my direct family was killed, but um, I know with uh, other family members, there, there was about four or five killed during the Troubles, and one killed that before during the Civil War. So um, it has an impact, I say, you know, over time um, on how people deal with trauma you know some people just ignore it some people talk about it and some people try to engage with you know civil society or different groups or even the state in order to try to get some sort of help and it's it it has repercussions on our society it has repercussions on communities and families um and it just i've seen it ruin so many people's lives um both for themselves their children even their grandchildren um and you know part of my background of getting into law was to um make a difference to you know sort of pursue some sort of justice but i you know sat in the courtroom and i got bored really quickly maybe it was you know it was a, it was a magistrate's court dealing with quite you know mundane issues but um i i started doing law as my undergraduate um and at, i wasn't really thinking about you know, becoming a barrister, then it was sort of off-put. Um, I, I thought I'd work for an NGO or civil society, and so I did my master's in human rights law. 
I did both a Queen's in Belfast because it's it was our main university and it also has a really good history of doing human rights during conflict. Um, it was set up in 1990, but you know people like uh, Kevin Boyle, Tom Haddon, Bryce Dixon were all very much involved in conflicts in Kurdistan, the Middle East, uh, Central Africa. So it was really good learning from those experts um, during my undergraduate and postgraduate. But um, the PhD I never really thought about, about doing. Um, and my PhD was all focused on the ICC. And so when I finished it and published my first book, I wanted to sort of get away from talking about the International Criminal Court because it has a tendency of sucking all the oxygen out of the room in relation to how we think about dealing with mass atrocities, you know, you, you, in issues around Ukraine, Gaza, Sudan, people go, well, you know, that's involved in international criminal court. And, you know, from doing my research, um, which is mostly desk-based, but I also did some field work in Uganda, um, I found that it was, it was more idealism than actually practical reality, particularly for those who were, you know, mostly affected. And so over the past well over a decade now, I've been working with uh, some local victims groups in Northern Ireland, but also around the world on issues around you know access to justice and reparations, um, and um, it's it definitely has shown a, the the gap between the international norms we have in human rights law or international humanitarian law and the reality of victims struggling to get any sort of recognition and redress. So I worked um, with uh, an injured victims group in Northern Ireland um, was associated with wave trauma um, and you had people who um, were injured in their 20s in the early 70s um, and were left to live in poverty and they were discriminated against. They had um, you know, very, very physical um, trauma, but also, you know, I, I know how mentally they would, they would exist every day. No one, you know, they had to live with us um, and live without being able to get a job. Um, it was just, you know, they were very strong people. And, you know, I came along saying, you know, let's talk about this issue of reparations. And they sort of rejected it out of hand. <laughs> they said, you know, we don't want anything to do with the Treaty of Versailles. Um, you know, we don't think it's all that useful. But, you know, we, we built a good relationship. Um, and, uh, you know, I became part of their efforts to uh, push for reparations and you know they didn't need me to articulate you know what their needs were or what they wanted they were firmly of the view and knew how to deal with you know very difficult political and media interviews um, as well as you know sort of mobilize people so it was a real learning curve working with them and in the end, in 2020, the law was passed um, and they now will um, can apply for a pension. And that's what they wanted. It was it was a way of getting their financial security. And so in the background of all this, you know, post-PhD, I wanted to do more work on reparations. It's something which I find interesting in my PhD, but also wanted to sort of broaden my understanding. So I got more involved in transitional justice. And um, I was lucky enough after my PhD to go straight into a job with Kieran McAvoy and Louise Malder and Gordon uh, Anthony in, in the School of Law at Queen's. And they were looking at how to apply their research in amnesties and prosecutions to um, policy debates in Northern Ireland. And that was well over a decade ago now, and we're still having those debates. So it's, it's, it's very frustrating how slow things come, um, but also it's how the state resists any sort of interrogation of its role, um, but also the role of paramilitaries um, in our society, which now some of them have transitioned to political groups or you know, um, community workers, which is good in terms of peace building. It's not great in terms of actually dealing with the past and dealing with victims' needs. And um, so there's about over 2,000 unsolved murders. Um, 
people who were compensated um, for bereavement, for those who family members who were killed, got next to nothing. Um, and we've only really resolved the issue with injured victims. So working on that postdoc was a really good way of, you know, mixing, doing research and also policy engagement. I think part of our ethos at the School of Law at Queen's is always about giving back, that we're privileged enough to do this sort of research and um, but we also work quite closely with local groups whether that's worth you know with the elderly and um, whether with child children in the, the criminal justice system or whoever it's always about building that sort of connections and um, we're sort of lucky that we're a very small place that we're able to do that but um in a long way of getting to you know how i got to sort of this book was i um applied for a number of grants um, and i um, failed to get a lot of grants um, and then I sort of went for just applying for a big grant um, and we took about 18 months to write it and I was able to bring you know Kieran McAvoy, Clara Sandoval, Peter Dixon, uh, James Gallen and my good colleague at the School of Law, uh, Cheryl Lawler um, on board in the project and um, we were lucky enough to get funding and um, we started the project in 2017 um, and it's having never done a large project before we were um, overly ambitious we promised a lot and so the problem of having to deliver you know we had 12 policy reports we had like a whole range of things we had to deliver um and also we said we'd do interviews in six countries so we, we did a lot of traveling before covid um you know working with um different ngos and victims groups in uh, guatemala so which, may i ask which which uh, countries were included yes yeah, so we, which we are meant- the six countries yeah, so we went to Colombia, Guatemala, uh, Peru, Nepal, Northern Ireland, and Uganda. And we also had a little side project in South Sudan, and we done a lot of subsequent work in Ukraine. So um, really the whole point of the project was to interrogate to what extent are reparations implemented in societies moving away from conflict. Um, as the need probably well know, is that a lot of the research that was written in the early days of transitional justice was on authoritarianism um, stuff that you, you know, you, you've written extensively on in Eastern Europe but also in, in Latin America and even you could, you could say about apartheid as well in South Africa um, but the transitional justice there hasn't been a good systematic review of how things work post-conflict and so um, the peace building studies would do a lot around that but transitional justice wouldn't really so in relation to reparations we want to look at that in particular the role of victims, the role of civil society and also non-state arms groups to what contribution they can make so the so my my, uh, my uh, next question would have been when and how did you discover your passion for transitional justice but it's it is by now clear to our listeners that your personal background um is uh, where your passion for and indeed this passion is uh, is uh, palpable in a way in the way you speak in the way you uh, you relate uh, about your uh, postdoc and about your uh, um, uh, previous uh, project i just wanted to um, remind the listeners that uh, reparations and war is not your first book to make an impact in the field of uh, transitional justice in 2014 you published Justice for Victims Before the International Criminal Court in a Rutledge series on research in international law. And you told us um, a little bit about uh, that project. And three years later, you were the co-editor of the Research hand- Handbook on Transitional Justice, with, uh, with the um, second edition uh, being published uh, in uh, August uh, uh, this year. Does the new book on reparations in any way builds on, on these 
two previous projects. I I contributed to the research handbook, and I was very pleased to do so. It's a it's a, a monumental um, 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 contribution to the field. It's one of the most re- respected reference books in the field. But do you see a continuation of all these huge projects um, leading up? The, your um, uh, recently published book uh, on reparations. <laughs> that's that's kind of you said those words about the <laughs> the the books. Um, I think uh, it is a sort of a trajectory. Um, you know, my first book on, um, on the International Criminal Court came from my PhD thesis, and then uh, we were lucky, Cheryl and I, um, to get involved, and then we took over the the editorship of the um, the first handbook with Dov Jacobs and um, there were some really good contributions including yourself that were already there and ready to go so we just sort of push things on um, and then having the most recent uh, edition coming out it's it's been really good just to sort of read and bring together such a great cohort of people who are working on on this quite difficult area um, and sometimes um, I feel that I get a bit jaded about transitional justice because you know you, you struggle for so long and some things don't change and other things get republished and um, maybe with a different title um, in terms of like the, the, sometimes the articles just re-engage with stuff that's already been been brought forward and then you come across an article which sort of reinvigorates the field and so i think the book itself on reparations and war was trying to, to broaden the gaze beyond just transitional justice it's very heavily you know looks at transitional justice those six countries um we're all going under some sort of transition um, and transitional justice is the sort of byword of how to, to deal with these mass atrocities but i also wanted to sort of think about you know what place does transitional justice law and even us as like academics and civil society play in shaping these debates and so i I wanted this book to sort of be the best thing I've ever written and to really reflect um, on the state of the field and how people actually experience law and justice. Um, and so like, we, we were very lucky to interview well over 300 people in about 166 interviews. And we had some like excellent uh, like, interviewees. We spoke to like judges who were in the Maoists um, in Nepal. Um, we had judges in Guatemala who had, you know, it sat in very big cases but also had attempts against their life um, and even lawyers in, in Colombia um, who talked about you know I was like you know why do you do this risky work you know your members of your team are killed and they were like this is the most dignified way to practice the law and so it's it's those sort of things that I would sort of rebuild your hope in humanity and maybe even in the law a little bit and in law and, in law and lawyers yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah because we also always have this bad image of, of lawyers um but i think that uh you know working with victims makes it um more real because this is their their daily existence and i think that if we tolerate what happens with them you know our children are sort of next sort of mentality that we like when victims you talked about you know with reparations one of the things isn't just always about money it's they don't want this to happen to their children or grandchildren this you know guarantees non-recurrence so the book itself was trying to tie all these different threads together um especially because it's quite fragmented when you look at reparations there's a lot written in international law there's a lot written in transitional justice and human rights law so i was trying to pull it all together and also think that none of this stuff is new you know that's historically reparations have been used um for perhaps thousands of years so it's maybe something about the human condition how do we sort of end violence in a way 
So let's start uh, by reminding listeners how the first case of reparations dating 1928 set out a guiding principle for reparations. What was that? Have reparations evolved since then? Yeah, so the sort of the big uh, origin story of reparations in international law comes from the the Germany v Poland case, Chorzo Factory. Um, it's it's not all that exciting case. It's about you know and disputed ownership after the First World War, but it sets on this really important principle that international law still abides by. So the International Court of Justice, the ICC, different uh, countries around the world, um, and in that case, it says that you know, reparations should, as far as possible. Um, wipe out the consequences um, caused by an illegal act uh, and sets down a few other principles as well um, but in that sort of notion um, is reparations being practiced to some extent as a measure of justice but um, what I talk about in the book is that this ideal version of reparations is wiping out the consequences um, of wrongdoing is impossible you, you look at contemporary conflicts um, you can't you know, undo those who've been killed. You can't remedy those who've been uh, seriously maimed in conflict or suffered torture or sexual violence. So then it brings back then what are we trying to do with reparations? And I think one of the biggest things in the book was um, that reparations are obviously for victims, to help victims, but for perpetrators, for those who are responsible, reparations are an important mechanism for taking ownership of the wrongdoing and trying to not repackage it, but a way of sort of um, saying that we engage with normal values of the rule of law and that we recognise wrongdoing and we want to remedy the consequences that we have caused. So it's about them taking ownership of their wrongdoing, really. Just it occurred to me now that somebody might say reparations, in fact, translate human suffering and human loss in money and this is wrong on i mean th- th- this is this is not teaching the perpetrators that much and it it might not help victims that much how would you respond to such a view yeah i think it's 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 a legitimate criticism of reparations that you're paying for blood money you're paying for violators to continue to violate and um, it's a way of sort of um, a way to them to pay off victims and to silence them but I think where we see reparations now particularly in human rights law is that money isn't just enough for for gross violations you really need to also have acknowledgement you need memorialization you need investigations and importantly you need a guarantee of non-recurrence that the those responsible won't commit it again the, the thing is um Sometimes money is the only thing people listen to. So you think about corporations operating in conflict areas. Um, you know, a family member who would work in this area um, of dealing with uh, complicit actors would always say, you hit them in their pocket, and that's how you get them to comply. Um, so when it comes to the state, um, the state is a legal fiction. It's something we create as an entity. And so um, in some cases, we can prosecute individuals and that's separate from reparations it's linked but separate um, but you know the state then has to take responsibility and change this behavior with armed groups as well it's something we dealt with um, extensively and it's something that they want to do with, deal with because it shows them that they can be like the state or they can be responsible actors your introduction starts with a simple truth and you say here i i'm citing reparations cannot cure the harm caused by war. You continue by stating that it may seem strange 
to start a book of reparations and war in what it cannot do. <laughs> Why this as a starting point? Yeah, I, I suppose um, it may reflect some of my frustration that um, I, I would be involved in a lot of uh, events um, at high level, also of NGOs um, and different um, international actors, and they would always talk about, you know, we need to you know, seize the assets of this person, we need to prosecute this person, and by giving reparations, we'll help victims. And really reparations used in a rhetorical way like that are like a band-aid over a massive wound like um reparations are very politically contentious um and are something which are quite technical as well so and um, when you start really getting into the detail of it it's it's it's, it's quite problematic so um because then it's you know you'll, you'll know as well but you know dealing with issues of vetting and illustration who gets involved and um, so i wanted people to have uh, an informed account. I'm not trying to manage expectations, but I think when I, people say reparations, people think money, oh, victims are going to get paid off here, um, or that it's going to cost the government too much. Um, I think that we need to have a, a you know a well-informed discussion about reparations when we start using that word. I agree. Can we tell the listeners something about the main structure of the book? How, the, are, uh, how does the argument unfold? Yeah, so um, I originally wanted to write six chapters, um, and I probably would have wanted to write ten um, if I had uh, the space, but uh, the, the book's set up in nine chapters, and really the introduction gives a good starting point because um, in the introduction I sort of pull upon some of the questions we asked our interviewees. So we asked 300 people. The first question was always, what does reparation mean to you? And we got this kaleidoscopic view of different terms that were associated with reparation. Some people said money, some talked about dignified repair, some used um, local terms, which when translated didn't really match to what reparation was. So um, the book sort of talks about um, the vernacular of reparations, how reparations as its own form of language has its own um, power dynamics. And that's quite problematic then in terms of how then victims can access their rights. So um, the first um, two chapters are quite theoretical. The first chapter sort of sets out the ground for um, how reparations have previously been discussed. And so there's a lot written um, on reparations and dealing with a whole range of issues from colonialism, you know, the transatlantic slave trade, um, to also then conflict and, you know, authoritarian regimes. So there's quite a lot of theorizing about how best to deal with reparations. So I wanted to sort of capture that debate because all those different strands in that first chapter, so justice, and morality and sort of reconciliation as justifications for reparations. I use some of that, that in the second chapter to sort of come up with my own theory that reparations aren't really about trying to reconcile with your enemy or to um, to recognize victims' harm or to ensure justice of the perpetrator. It's more about trying to find a balance between all these competing things. Um, and also importantly, trying to look at it from a social legal approach. So there's a lot of things we use in law, particularly notions of proportionality or feasibility, which is actually in that um, that judgment of chores of factory, where it talks about reparations should as far as possible. So it's not trying to say that reparations are unlimited um, or something which is minimal, but aims to strive for the maximum. 
Um, and so reparations is balanced is about trying to get these competing interests of victims, trying to get as much as possible to deal with their harm as they rightly should, but also the capacity of the responsible actor, the state or the armed group to provide that. Um, and so the middle point is that, you know, that that axis so much trying to um, push reparations forward. And it's something which changes over time. So I talk about that a lot. Um, so try to de- develop a new theory of thinking of reparations there. The third chapter is like the historical development of reparations. And so about 18 months ago, I was, I was losing my mind trying to read everything I could on reparations and trying to go as far back as possible. Uh, I'm not a historian by training, um, but I, I was trying to go and dig up as much as possible. Um, and so I sort of condensed it down into thinking about how reparations operated, um, not just in sort of a Western perspective, but um, around the world um, in different civilizations. Um, and there was this consistent sort of practice of trying to um, mediate war and trying to end war by um, helping those who had, who had suffered. Uh, of course, reparations historically um, in, in modern times, let's say from like the 1800s onwards, were used to punish. Uh, those who were vanquished to to defeat the the loser. And so the Romans used a similar sort of principle as well. Um, So there's something to be said about empire and the use of reparations to punish um, those who lose conflicts. Um, And that sort of plays through in terms of then also, um, you know, decolonization after the 50s so it's the, the second chapter uh, i actually really enjoyed writing it because and um, there's a lot of stuff i learned and didn't know before and we didn't really touch up on it in the reparations project because we were looking at contemporary conflicts but the third chapter on that historical perspective tries to pull different threads together and it also it's, it's an inconsistent practice and um, we can't say there's sort of clear rules um even in the last hundred years um the you know the, the fourth chapter talks about reparations um in international law and the historical perspective has been that um states will often waive so they'll you know not claim their rights to reparations um even if they've won the war or suffered a lot of victims in order to ensure peace so the fourth chapter sort of then looks at then the, the legal structure of that and how it exists today and sort of pulls together sort of four main areas of war um that are touched upon in international law, so um, the use of force, so that the legality of going to war, um, international humanitarian law and the conduct of hostilities, um, international human rights law, where most of these things have been uh, developed, and then a general reflection on international law in general and war. I think, you know, where would we think reparations would be strongly when we think about war would be on the laws of war on IHL, but actually it, it's very, very weak. And so human rights law has been used to sort of fill the gaps. But even there, human rights law gives way to the rules of armed conflict because under the laws of armed conflict, you can um, you can target a site um, which is being used such as by like a, a rebel or terrorist organization. Um, and even if civilians are killed, provided it, it isn't excessive, it's still lawful. And so what that means for those victims is they don't have a right under, you know, IHL laws of war to make a claim for reparations because there's been no wrongdoing. There's nobody responsible. And um, that's, that's fundamentally problematic then because we see it in contemporary conflicts where you've got children being brought to hospitals bodies being digged out of buildings that these people have died and so legality sort of um uh you know wallpapers over these people's experience of suffering um and makes the law quite hegemonic that it's it's a way of those in power to use violence and not be held account for it so the fourth chapter sort of talks about you know fundamental problems in international law in claiming reparations 
the next sort of four chapters, which are more the chapters which reflect on the, the field work. So the first chapter is about, you know, victims and victimhood and how victims sort of um, claim reparations. And so it reflects on how we understand who's a victim um, and uh, sort of concepts which are currently still developing when we think about, you know, the issue of environmental harm, how indigenous people have the relationship with land, um, and also sort of how even members of the army, um, so state forces, also try to feel themselves as victims or, or resist that sort of that label. Um, as well as, as something which I've written a lot before about complex victims, so people who are also responsible for victimizing others. So we interviewed a number of child soldiers, um, a number of commanders who um, were involved in, in committing violations against other people, but also um, had suffered you know terrible losses to their own family and themselves. So trying to reflect on you know that sort of complex experience of conflict because when people's experience of war is that it's not just one day it's sometimes years it's often decades living in a situation of insecurity um, and so people can have multiple harms and so one of the things to try to reflect on that final part of the chapter is you know about how harm it becomes normalized and that was like our experience in northern ireland it was a low level conflict but you know it's the everyday experience of um, you know, being evacuated from a building before it's being blown up, or um, you know, hearing on on the news that um somebody had been shot and he didn't know it was your family member or not, um, or even a shooting happened outside your school. So these were just sort of everyday things which people just saw as normal, um, and that's that's really problematic. But it's a way of sort of coping with this pervasive violence. Um, so then how do we deal with deal with that in post conflict? It's quite complex because you know we interviewed a police officer and he said that you know it, they would have 30 to 50 incidents where um per year where they saw you know a colleague being killed or shot or them having to go to a scene that was like incredibly tra- traumatic and instead of them going and, and claiming something they would go back to their desk open a bottle of vodka and just drink it um because that was the way that was the culture of you know just sucking it up and um bottling it away so um that sort of chapter reflects that sort of complex experience of violence um this this chapter six is more about um how reparations are administered and so um we interviewed a lot of people who were bureaucrats effectively in reparations programs people who were responsible for um delivering reparations and designing them um, and it sounds really really boring but in actually in practice it's uh, it's a really important part of critiquing and think about how reparations work because um there was different sort of practices you know something which um i probably would like to have done more on but is this issue of how you know compensation and reparations are used by state actors even you know some armed groups to pay off victims so you know some people have written about how compensation is a, a weapon strategy sorry weapon system and a strategy it's a way of winning hearts and minds um, and that's that's problematic because it just you know it greases the wheels of war it just facilitates killing um, um, and also you know something which was, was quite strong in places like uh, Colombia um, and even uh in Uganda is where you have different perspectives within the state. The state isn't just unified. So you know you had a you know a quite a government brought in which was quite resistant to dealing with the past. But you then had people in different institutions who were resisting the state and trying to put through judgments or awards to victims, which went to get against the state sort of um, 
you know narrative of the conflict or its own um, ideology. So um, the, 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 trying to try to reflect on that, and also that as human beings, we've got you know a very short amount of time on this planet, but also our, our memories are quite short. And so trying to reflect that, you know, when it comes to reparations, it's not something which happens overnight. It's something something which takes years or decades to succeed. And, you know, I... I, I've 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 sat down with um, a number of victims groups and and told them this and it, it's very difficult sometimes to accept, and um, because you know they can't wait um and you know one of the things I talk about in the book and um, particularly in chapter eight is about you know how harm worsens over time, um and so victims can't just wait in reparations, um so chapter six is all about you know the rule of the state and the state isn't always neutral or a sort of a peacemaker, um, it has its own agenda. Um, and we see in places like in Guatemala, where um, we interviewed a government minister, we'd went to one a famous uh, case, Plan de Sanchez, before the Inter-American Court. Um, and the court there had awarded um, quite extensive collective reparations, so collective in the sense that they would help the community, build, rebuild the roads, sewage works, the health clinic. Um, and so we spoke to the government minister saying, you know, we, we visited this place and a lot of things weren't completed you know you're ordered by the court to do this and you know judges regularly came to, to see about compliance and we, and we said you know one of the things is the road it's, it's a real dusty you know bad road going up this mountainside and he was like well it's going to cost us like 1.5 million dollars to rebuild this road and the victims don't even want to help us rebuild it and um, so it's like it was very you know um broken understanding of what their obligation was they, they were ordered to do this they couldn't just say we don't have the money or you know we don't have cooperation they as the state had to provide these things so um it was also trying to reflect that um a lot of people who are put in these positions of these organizations were political appointees and um we actually um were interviewing people who two three days later were then replaced so it's it's the high changeover and the lack of sort of memory that these institutions have as well. We expect them to know all these things, and sometimes they don't. So the chapter six, um, it's something I didn't attend to write, but it became quite interesting and quite an important part when going through all the data of our interviews. Um, chapter seven uh, was um, on non-state armed groups. And so part of our reparations project was to sort of interrogate and look at the role of rebel organizations or, or terrorists, how you want to call them, how they sort of dealt with reparations, because there was very little written um, on this like five six years ago a lot of people said it's either quite symbolic or it doesn't happen um, and we interviewed about 18 different armed groups um, and we found that there was a whole range of practice and um, what often happened was they often made during conflict reparations to their own community because something happens they had a you know a, a they had a shooting with the army and some civilians got injured because of the way in which the, the rebels were shooting. And so they would go to the families and try to, you know, pay back. So, you know, buy a car or something um, or, you know, replace something which had been damaged. And when it came to like injuring or killing a, a family member, they would either try and transfer the injured person to like medical facilities or give their own medical care um, or pay, give some sort of money. Um, post-conflict then that changes again um so how armed groups are political agents um and the sort of the difficult engagement they have to go through between you know being fighters fighting against the state um fighting against their enemies then also recognizing their enemies as victims and so it's quite a you know difficult process something which is quite, quite visible in colombia um, but it's less so in places like nepal and uganda and northern ireland um, so I talk through um, a lot of those um, issues, um, but like a lot of things in the book, they're also complemented by our, our policy outputs that we have on our 
a reparations website which go into more detail of like how armed groups actually deal with reparations how civil society and donors support reparations so it's quite a condensed version down it's like what less than 35 pages um, on that subject chapter 8 which is the last final substantive chapter um, is about um, what happens to victims who don't get reparations so Olson and others um, nearly a decade ago looked at um, how transitional societies deal with a whole range of things you know truth commissions prosecutions you know vetting and reparations and when it came to reparations they found that out of 84 sites they looked at only 10 countries had you know partially, mostly, um, or totally complied um, in delivering some sort of reparations to victims. And so we find that this is the case in a lot of the sites we looked at. In the case of Guatemala, about you know, 16, 70% of victims actually benefited from the reparations program before it was finally um, stopped at ground to hunt. It, was, you know, it stopped being funded by the government a couple of years ago. Um, and so, we, so from talking to these victims, we were like, you know, how do you deal with this ongoing trauma and harm and so um in a way it's about you know them mobilizing in their community so um some victims of the rio negro Negro massacre in uh, guatemala talked about how when they started claiming reparations they didn't go to the government first they started with their family and community and they talked about breaking down the walls of silence and even impunity there and talking about we need to claim this we need to claim what happened to us was wrong and you know, seek justice and reparations um, because otherwise it'll happen again. And for some of those victims, they got repercussions. Their family members um, you know, left them um, or chucked them out of their house. Um, in one case, a victim, she was very adamant about testifying in a trial against the president, um, suffered domestic abuse from her husband and her community also attacked her house because um, they thought the army was going to return and kill them all so there's there's almost this this self um restraint that's within victimized communities um because they don't want to go through it again you know that's about survival rather than uh, seeking justice and so it takes victims that time to come together to mobilize and um, also it's to think about who speaks for victims some people have a tendency of making um a, a job out of it or uh, you know and there's a criticism in transitional justice of being an industry and um, based around the suffering of victims and so who speaks for victims is very telling about positions of privilege that is often you know urban um well-off educated people rather than what ap- actually happens in conflict is you know people who are from uh you know working class um or unemployed and um, even rural communities which are affected most um, and their voices are sort of left out um, of these debates and so that chapter looks at then how do victims sort of come together and really it sort of comes to the conclusion that reparations only succeed with victims you know we see that with um the germans uh, forced labor claims commission that was set up in the early 2000s and um, with the reparations program set in colombia and um, those are two big reparations programs the german forced labor claims like it was over 10 billion dollars that's because victims came together and put pressure on german companies and the german states to deliver reparations and the same with the colombian reparations program it was something that started in medellin and then pushed to the national level and that's because the inadequacy of the previous you know provisions that were made mainly you know the the 2005 uh, justice and peace law um which didn't really deal with uh you know victims of state violence um, and guerrilla violence so 
a lot of what comes about of reparations because victims push for it. There is situations where reparations do occur because they're created by an international mechanism or by the state itself trying to you know, satisfy international donors. So the example would be Sri Lanka and the Office of Reparations was set up or um, in relation to um, efforts which are currently going on for like places like Ukraine um, where... Um, and even in Myanmar, where it's, it's, there's, there's focus more investigation or prosecution takes priority, and victims have very little involvement in the design of actually, you know, what a reparations body should look like. And and this is, it goes back to the sort of fundamental uh, tenant in transitional justice that any sort of effort to seek in, um, you know, sustainable peace and ensuring justice have to come from within the country itself. And that was the first report by Louis Jeunet, um, I think in the 90s, when he started looking at this issue of impunity. Um, and it's, it's, it's self-evident truth when you're talking to people because you can't impose justice or reparations from above. It has to, you know, actually mean something to victims. Um, and so that chapter really reflects on that. and also reflects on that, you know, waiting all this time, victims find their own way of dealing with some of their harm, not all of it, because it's 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 too, it's too big for them to carry, but how they sort of deal with this notion of self-repair. Um, so we ha- we spoke to um, a number of uh, Afro-Colombian communities in uh, like Cali, and they would talk about, you know, the first place of claiming reparations is for them to come together and think about repairing and forgiving themselves. Um, th- there's a lot of stigma around repar- around you know victimization and that you need to deal with that first before claiming uh, redress also the way in which um, NGOs and civil society sort of operate that um, they provide important counseling services or memorialization even like investigations to help support uh, victims' claims, and so I, I sort of want to reflect on that that notion of like informal and self blur as a sort of a story of victims being resilient and having their own agency. They're they're not always waiting on the state. Um, and so you know, from working with the injured victims in Northern Ireland, they would always say that you know the state treats us like beggars. They're constantly forcing us to go up, and we're out in the streets, we're out getting petitions, we're going to the courts. You know, we have we are agents. You know, we're constantly pushing forward. We're not the little people. We're people trying to you know demand what's you know rightfully ours so i think that was part of that last chapter that's that, that story and then the final chapter chapter nine is trying to reflect on all this so um about 40 pages looking at um you know how does reparations work in practice um what the impact is and so i was lucky enough to interview people who had received reparations so um some of the people who had suffered massacres in guatemala but also um some of the families of bloody sunday and that was a process in the case of bloody sunday where you had um british soldiers who shot dead 14 civilians who were part of a, a peaceful protest they said at the time the ira was involved this this republican paramilitary group um and it took you know, um, 40 years for the truth to come out um, in a big public inquiry. And then during our project between 2018, even up to today, there's still ongoing compensation cases. So at the time, the families were only compensated a couple of hundred pounds, so very little amount. And so more recently, they've got tens of thousands of pounds. In one case, somebody got 625,000 because of their income and their family members and stuff. So we were able to interview some of those victims before they got that money and then after. Um, and it was just interesting, their perspectives. Um, some of it was quite... Uh, it was was quite Northern Irish. We're we're, we're not limited to how we um, swear. So it's, uh, but it reflects the sort of the emotions and uh, that money didn't change things for them. It was just part of that recognition. But even though they got, 
you know, in some cases quite substantive amounts of compensation, it was too little too late, or it was undermined by the state resisting prosecuting the soldiers who were responsible. They were still shielding these people who had murdered civilians on the street, um, you know, 50 years on. So it, it just reflects that broader problem. So th- that's the extent of the book. That's quite a, that's probably the most I've ever talked about it in terms of how it's structured, but it gives a sense of the different elements that are therein. This is a wonderful book that provides a wealth of data on all these facets of um, uh, reparations of war. If you were to change anything to the book, what would that be? <laughs> um, yeah, I like I had to cut about twenty five thousand words um, from the book, so um, I think it makes the book leaner um, and more effective. But I, I would have liked it on a chapter just on the issue of how to do reparations during conflict. It's something which you know is, is obviously quite relevant to, to ongoing issues around the world. Um, but it's it's something which has its own dynamics. I touched it briefly on chapter six, but it is something different. You know, Colombia's got a good example of trying to do reparations during conflict, but as one civil society actor said to us, you know, they're adding 10,000 victims each month still um, to the register um, for people to claim reparations. So how do you sort of turn off the tap of victimization? You know, when does it ever stop? Um, reparations isn't changing things and you got people coming back claiming again and again you know so um, I would like to reflect on like how you know reparations could be used during conflict it's maybe sort of a way to think about ending conflict mm-hmm. what is the reparations case that you consider the most successful <laughs> I, I get that question a lot or you know which country you know was the most success in terms of percentage and i think it's, it's, it's very difficult you know you can look at peru and peru's completed its reparations program and it delivered it to what 90 95 of all victims but the victims you know some we talked to weren't all satisfied it was very small amounts where you can look at places like colombia where it's delivered reparations to just over about 11 percent of victims but it's delivered you know to 1.25 million victims so it's more than the 70,000 in Peru, but it's going to take 75 years to deliver to the other 8 million victims. So I think um, Colombia has really tried to push the boundaries on it, but it's suffered from politicization like every country does and programs being defunded or not getting sufficient funding. And I think the Truth Commission recently brought out recommendations. I think there was maybe over a thousand recommendations about how the reparations program could be improved. So I think the thing with reparations is it's an evolving process. It's, it's iterative, you know, and I think victims constantly try to push the program to improve in itself. So it's a way of sort of evolving the system to ensure that um, that you're always pursuing success. But at the end of the day, you know, victims don't want to be always labeled as victims and having to constantly come back. So you want to try to aim to do the most as, as, as you can. Just listening to you, it occurred to me that uh, uh, very interesting would be if you did you did you see any kind of of um, um, countries that looked at other other or neighboring countries or other countries in the world for lessons for for this improving of of reparations programs? Do you have this synergy between countries or pretty much? Everybody reinvents the wheel every time they are thinking of reparations. No, I think there's there's definitely um, a bit of 
shopping about or for ideas. Um, so in in relation to um, some of the Latin American countries, there was a lot of experience learned, and there's a lot of back and forth between different countries. Um, you know, so um, Colombians would talk about how Mexico copied their victims' law, but it's not fit for purpose because you know it's a completely different situation. But it, but it, even in Northern Ireland, like we, we would always critique that you know at, after our peace agreement, there was a pile of South Africans that came over, and even like in contemporary debates, people would talk about let's do a South African Truth Commission. Um, and you know it, it's a very sort of minimalistic understanding of what happened and the, the context of how that's, that's developed and also the problems that came after. Um, so I think um, people do like the idea of, you know, and how are, that's, that goes to the issue of vernacular of reparations. They have some sort of concept. Um, and there is, there's almost like a, a platform of international experts that go around um, and talking reparations, like in, with with Ukraine, there's a whole junket of people, you know, in that area talking about reparations. Um, and you know, it, it, uh, you know, what's where's their their baseline understanding? What's their sort of motivation? Um, because there's a lot of money, f- you know, floating about. Um, and it was the same thing in Colombia. You had a lot of experts being brought in to help shape different things. And you know, you have to also weigh it up against local expertise and local experience. How do you find the best balance between that? Because in Nepal, you had a law which was um, very heavily international NGO focused, um, but it also then sort of stymied issues around truth recovery. Um, it also created a, a reparations term, which sort of you know. Um, involved notions of caste so um there's there's a key role for trying to get a balance between you know international expertise and comparative you know experience to also trying to design things with that knowledge because you mentioned uh, ukraine there has been a lot of talk uh, on reparations um, being offered once the war in ukraine is over could you briefly explain to our listeners the usefulness of reparations for that particular situation and uh, its feasibility how how do you see how do you see reparations related to the to the ongoing war in ukraine Yeah, so um, I'm I'm constantly inv- invited to sort of different uh, the groups to speak on this issue. Um, uh, some the NGOs, some the victims groups, some the international organizations. So, so there's a lot of it. Like I've never seen so much attention for reparations. It's it's good, but also um, I see it at the sort of the international level. The debate on reparations is getting absorbed by reconstruction. And so there is a lot of interest in how international funding is going to reconstruct Ukraine because there's been so much devastation of infrastructure and um, urban centers. I think what's important with reparations is that it's trying to um, alleviate victims' harm. And, you know, something which we talk about um, in our project's final output, the Belfast Guidelines and Reparations, is that you need to implement reparations as soon as possible because victims' harm only gets worse. Their health deteriorates, you know, it can be more difficult to trace them, more difficult for them to get evidence. And so in the case of Ukraine, we should be aiming to set up some sort of program that helps and gives specialists, you know, health care or um, resources to victims um, as soon as possible. But I think who who would inf- who would offer these reparations is the is the Ukrainian government uh, the international community because I'm I'm not sure that the Russian government will uh, will be so uh, <laughs> forthcoming. Yeah. No, I, um I I would say that the Ukrainian government is has obligations to ensure that every 
person within its jurisdiction has access to an effective remedy and reparation. So even though Ukraine isn't responsible, it is, it's, it's responsible for looking after its own people um, or people within its jurisdiction. Now, really, when it comes to the, the, the war itself, Russia is responsible for causing this war of aggression and for committing horrendous war crimes, you know, and also potentially crimes against humanity. Um, but we can't wait until there's going to be a peace settlement. Um, there is a lot of efforts, you know, um, with the register of damage which has been created to collect um, claims, which is going to go operational in the next uh, few months, um, as well as, you know, assets being seized. There's there's talk about, you know, $600 billion worth of Russian assets being frozen. Now, the difficulty is you can't, in international law, just take us money and just give it to the Ukrainians because um, other countries around the world could seize the US, the UK's or whoever's assets and do the same. Um, it's it's illegal. Um, but there, I, I think there's probably a moment where getting towards the end of the conflict, um, Russia could be forced to make a contribution to reparations. Um, and we're talking in, you know, billions you know, um, it won't be probably 600 or a trillion that's maybe being looked for in terms of the total damage. But I think there probably needs to be about 100 billion, maybe 200 billion um, set aside f- for reparations. Now, reconstruction is, is separate from that. But given the scale, like even the environmental damage, the contamination of land through landmines and cluster munitions, to even like from the few victims I've spoken to, like it's it's horrendous, even places which are liberated, like uh, Butcher, where people had, you know, their houses used as torture sites um, where they saw family members killed in the street like they may never be able to return to those places um and like the psychological harm alone needs to be um proper specialist rehabilitation services um probably the most closest example to what's happening in ukraine is colombia um, where you have you know nine million victims a fifth of the population but in ukraine you have potentially 14 15 million victims if you include all refugees and displaced persons a difficult moment will happen where you'll have to prioritize those who have been killed suffered sexual violence been tortured um to ensure that they get redress um so i think it's, it's gonna be a very difficult effort but it's not impossible the un uh, claims commission that was set up for iraq dealt with um was it one over 1.5 million victims and uh, you know gave out over 52 billion dollars um, so we have the practice and experience and we can do this um um, th- th- one of the things we always found that for people who were responsible for violations or for states, they always said there's no money, there's never any money. It's all about political will. If there's a will, we can find a way. And reparations don't have to be paid out all at once. This is going to something that's going to take decades um, in Ukraine, you know, 30 to maybe 50 years, because that has to follow the life of those victims and, you know, whether it's through pensions, specialist health care, and, and things like that. So it will have to be an extensive, well thought out effort. Uh, and my last uh, question is, uh, what is your next project? Do you Will you continue to work on reparations or you move your attention to something else? Uh, you just said that you are invited uh, to talk about reparations related to Ukraine. Uh, would that be another book? <laughs> I, am, I don't know. I think after finishing this book, like the, pretty much the first half of uh, 2023, I was just... Um, drained mentally <laughs> so I was just doing like sort of things which like uh, ticked over um, and I wasn't anything sort of substantive research wise I did I did a, um, a report on uh, uh, people who were killed during the troubles but it was archival work um, and the extent which they were compensated so that was sort of my transition project um, I'm still I'm still like very passionate about reparations and I will do more work but I'll probably look at it um more in terms of how do you deal with an ongoing conflict 
um, uh, what place does that sit? And also, how do we better improve the rules of um, the laws of war, you know, IHL? Because there's a fundamental gap there that human rights law doesn't capture. So that's probably where I'm moving. Ultimately, you know, I'll be doing more work in Ukraine, more work in Northern Ireland. Um, so we'll see where things go. Our guest today at New Books Network was Luke Moffat, a professor of human rights and international humanitarian law in the School of Law of uh, Queen's University in Belfast and a fellow of the Center George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice at the same university. He talked to us so eloquently and passionately about his latest book, Reparations and War, Finding Balance in Repairing the Past, which was uh, just published with Oxford University Press uh, earlier this year. Thank you very much, and hope we'll talk again soon. Goodbye.